0: Gathers your people as we will at the end of the service to anticipate um, your return, to remember our present union with you and one another by the Spirit, to remember your sacrifice and the table that you established for your church to practice continually as a reminder of these things, a visible reminder of the gospel. And so. Prepare our hearts for that, and we do pray that as you now speak to us through your word, that we would receive it as your words, and that we would know the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives because of that word, and all to the resounding of your own glory. Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to finish up what we started last week, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11, or really the last part of verse 10, uh, verses 10 and 11. In a section that uh, began back in verse uh, 8, or really verse 6, but uh, verse 8, and some of these Specific instructions of Peter towards our spiritual battle, our spiritual battle in this world as we await the return of the Lord, as we await the fullness of our salvation, the fullness of the kingdom that was promised to us. We are in an anticipatory position now. We are anticipating his return. We're anticipating his glory that we will see. But now we wait, and we wait in a hostile environment, not only among men, but also our spiritual adversary let me introduce our section this morning uh, with this uh, reminder one old author said this there are two points in religion on which the teaching of the bible is very plain and distinct one of these points is the fearful danger of the ungodly the other is the perfect safety of the righteous one is the happiness of those who are converted the other is the misery of those who are unconverted The doctrine of perseverance is a truth with which the happiness of all God's children is most clearly connected. That was by J.C. Ryle. Some of you may know him. And the idea here, there, and the reason I read that quote, because it is the Christian's confidence in the midst of adversity, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of those things that threaten the continuance of our faith, that they can be sure that, faith will not fail, the promises of God will not fail, that there is a right and good reason to hold on, namely, to receive all that God has accomplished for us in Christ, and that that is something that God, who granted us salvation, will not fail to bring into our full possession. In other words, that Christians will persevere. They will persevere. They will not turn away. A true believer will not ultimately renounce faith in Christ. A true believer will not ultimately walk away from the gospel. Stumble, yes, fail, yes, sin, of course, but walk away, never. And that is because of the promise that God has made and the promise that God will keep and because of the perfection of Christ's work. And and that is essentially what... Peter is reminding us of here, specifically as he writes to this body of believers, but because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is recorded for us in Scripture and is meant to encourage God's people throughout the ages with this truth, that God will bring the kingdom to his people. So hold on, hold on. Let me read in verse 8, uh, 1 Peter 5, 8-11, through and then we'll look at this a little closely. Verse 8 Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, Will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. As I noted, we begin this section really big in verse 8, where Peter reminds us that this life that we live is a life of warfare, it's a life of spiritual battle, it is one that has ultimate consequences. The ultimate consequences in one sense is heaven and hell. There are consequences in terms of our ability to bring glory to God. There are consequences in terms of how successfully we live out the faith that we proclaim. And the the consequences are severe and the battle is severe because the consequences are so high. And we have not only the the struggles with the world under the influence of the evil one, not only the struggles with our own flesh, but we have the struggle with a spiritual adversary, the devil, and all of those who do his bidding as well. And so it is a spiritual battle. So he tells us in verse 8 to be on guard, to be sober, to be alert, to be aware of the battle, and to be a good soldier for Christ Jesus. And then he encourages us to say, stand firm, knowing that you are not alone in this battle, that you have brethren around the world, you have others who are in Christ, who are experiencing the same suffering as you are. They are being accomplished by your brethren, and we we noted there that The accomplishment of the suffering is not so much on the accomplishment of the suffering in terms of just enduring it until it ends, but rather coming to the full end of the purpose of that suffering, which is to receive the kingdom. It is not mindless suffering, it is not pointless suffering, it's suffering that has an end, and that is preparing us to receive the kingdom that has been promised to us in Christ. And so stand firm, knowing that you are not alone. Be encouraged by the example of those who have gone before you. Be encouraged by the example of those who are at the present time. Be that example fast to the truth of the gospel. And be encouraged as well that you can be that example to others as you stand firm and as you hold to the faith that others will draw strength from your own obedience. And so stand firm in unity with your brethren. And then in verse 10, what we began last week, We noted that this perseverance comes by trust in God's gracious character or God's gracious promises. His character and his promises, those are, of course, intertwined with each other. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so the first thing that he drew attention to here is the God who made this promise is the God of all grace. He's called one other time in a similar statement the God of all comfort by Paul in 2 Corinthians. And there he's the God of all comfort because Paul was under great threat. And he said he despaired even of life, but God who comforts us will comfort you in the same kind of suffering for the truth. And here he is, the God of all grace, which is simply to say that every grace, every aspect of our life, From beginning to end is a product of God's gracious work towards us. The beginning of our life in Christ is a matter of grace, sovereign grace by grace, and the end of our life will be a full realization of that grace. Him who gave to us, who deserve condemnation, the fullest expression of His goodness and His kindness in Christ Jesus. It is the God of all grace who sustained you, the God of all grace who called you, and the God of all grace who will. Keep you until the end. And the end is here, a glorious end. He says, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ. And again, this is a brief reminder of what we looked at last week. His eternal glory in Christ. And glory, as we've looked at in the past, has essentially this idea: the visible manifestations of Of the nature and the being of God. In other words, everything that he does is his glory because everything he does is a manifestation of who he is as the eternal, perfect, infinite, and sovereign one. And so when he acts, he acts for his own glory, and when he acts, he displays his own glory. And here he says he calls us into his internal, eternal glory in Christ. And that is the particular glory of God in the person and the work of Christ. It is a tremendous promise. It is his eternal glory in Christ. That is to say that God, out of all of his divine and infinite wisdom and purposes, had determined to bring the ultimate glory to himself in Christ. In creation, but even more than creation in the incarnation of christ his work of redemption his calling of people to himself to live in fellowship in unity with him forever and to know every spiritual blessing in christ is his particular glory in ephesians three ten, he says it is a glory in the church that is so magnificent that he's laid it before all of the angelic realm to look at and to marvel at his wisdom so it is The ultimate way that God has brought glory to himself is in Christ. And while this glory is consistent with his eternal glory, there is a sense in which it is a new kind of glory. It is an added glory, if you will, because there was not the glory of God as Redeemer before the incarnation, but now that is added to his eternal glory and consistent with it. And that's really where we left off last week so the glory is in eternal glory in this sense not only in the sense of that when we enter into this glory it's a glory that will last forever but that is a glory that is consistent with the glory that the son has always shared with the father now taking on a new dimension in his work of redemption and the incarnation but a gl- in John 17 as you're familiar with the high priestly prayer of Christ for his people, That's the true Lord's Prayer, you've heard that. Uh, Matthew 5 or 6 would be the disciples' prayer. Here is the true Lord's Prayer. It's his prayer on behalf of his people as high priest, as our mediator. And as he prepares to leave, he says this in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What glory was that? Glory is the Son of God. Glory as God. It is a glory that he shares equally with the Father. He has eternally shared this glory. He has never been without this glory. In verse 22 of John 17, he says, The glory you have given me, I have given to them. What glory did the Father give to him? If he has eternally shared this glory as the Son, as the divine Son, in what way could he be given glory? And the glory that he is given is his glory as redeemer and mediator of his people. The glory that he accomplished in his incarnation, the glory that he accomplished in his atonement, the glory that he accomplished in his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, and ultimately the glory that we will see in return, the glory that we will gaze on forever in heaven, glory eternally. That is the glory that was given to him, this particular glory that he has as redeemer. And so he says, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. They share in that glory. How do we share in that glory? We share in that glory because we are the fruit of that work of redemption. As we looked in Ephesians 1.18, we are his inheritance, the church, the people of God, are the inheritance of Christ. And in that sense, we share in that glory that the Father gave to him as Redeemer. Him the Redeemer, us as the redeemed, the fruit of it. Us who reflect and have the life of Christ in us. He says, I and them, and he says that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given to me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So this is Christ saying that in his exalted state, his eternal state, if we want to know what are the longings of his heart, the longing of the heart of our risen Christ and our risen Lord, even at this moment, is that we would be with him to share. Participates as well as the end of his work is to delight in the fullness of that glory that he has as our mediator, and it is, as I noted, a glory that is consistent with his eternal glory that he always had with the Father before the foundation of the world. So it's eternal glory. It is his eternal glory. And our life is to be revealed in him when he returns. Him who is our mediator, Him who is our Lord, Him who is our Redeemer. I'll just give you one other verse just to kind of fill that out a little bit. Fascinating verse in Colossians. So you don't have to turn there. Let me just read to you. So picking up on some of Peter's instructions uh, in 1 Peter that we are to set our mind, that is the beginning of spiritual battle is what goes on inside of your mind and inside of your heart. And so he's constantly telling us to take hold of your thoughts and lay hold of these glories of your redemption. And so he says to the Colossians, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, here it is, listen, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him glory. You will be revealed with him because when he comes in his glory and the full display of it, in his return, you will be subsumed in that glory as his people, as his kingdom, as his redeemed. And so here Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, your whole life is by grace. We noted there this being called is that effectual call, that call of God to his elect that guarantees that they will come to Christ and they will participate in this glory. And he says, you are those. You are those. When you're suffering and when you're going through a trial, this is the encouragement that God of all grace has called you to share in his glory and whatever trial and whatever testing of your faith that is a part of his preparation for that glory is merely to prepare you for that glory. And so if you can lay hold of that, what strength that gives in the midst of suffering. God's grace has not departed from you. God's grace is not distant. He is not distant. He's not the God of the deist who's unconcerned with the affairs of the world that he's created to run. He's the God who says, cast all your anxieties on me. He's the God who, in the very act of giving us this word, is communicating to us his mercy. Scripture is a mercy. Scripture itself The truth itself recorded for us on the pages of Scripture is God's encouragement to us to say, remember these things, think about these things, remember the promise, meditate on them, consider them. That's why we have the Bible, It's for those very things, is to encourage and inform our faith. And so he's called us into, as he says, lay hold of this future glory in your suffering, lay hold of the wonders of the redemption that you have received. God is going to glorify himself in you because he's a God of all grace. Let me just give you an example of how does this work out. I'm just going to mention these for time's sake. But in 2 Corinthians, we see this is the very truth that Paul rested on. It's what enabled him to endure what he did. You're familiar with these words. 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Lose heart for what? Lose heart because of the hardships. Lose heart because of the suffering. Lose heart because of the difficulties of, that come in this world from following Christ. He says, but though our outer man is decaying, that man is being renewed day by day. Can you say that? Can you say that in your trials, it's causing your inner man to be renewed day by day? That it's causing you day by day to depend more on the promises of Christ. It's causing you day by day to look more to the glories of your salvation. It's causing you day by day to remember that the only strength you have, the only hope you have, the only ability you have to live successfully in this world as a Christian is because of the grace you stand on in Christ Jesus. And then, as Paul would say later, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Why? Because I'm no longer living by Paul. I'm living in Christ. I'm no longer living by Paul's strength. I'm living by the strength which Christ supplies through his spirit which is in me. And that's part of the point of trials. Though our inner man is that we would not depend on ourselves but on Christ. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us what? An eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Why we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. You can't see that eternal glory in Christ Jesus yet. We see tokens of it. We see the church table. But we don't see the fullness of that glory. And so we're tempted to live by the things that we see. And he says, that's not the life of faith. The life of faith looks at the things which we can't see doesn't make any sense to the one who doesn't know Christ who hasn't tasted of his grace doesn't make any sense we noted last time how easy it is to forget God then in the psalmist we looked at the psalmist who cried God have you forgotten me we looked at the accusations of those outside of the gospel to suffering Christians and saying where is your God and Christians respond with Paul and say my God is on his throne My God is perfecting me through this. My God has redeemed me, the God who is, the God who could be your God. And this God is bringing a kingdom that will not fail. And I can't see it now. But I know it's coming because I stand on his promise. And I stand on his promise that was guaranteed for me in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so Paul says, we look at the things not which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. They are eternal. And that's what sustains us. You know, trials and suffering can do two things. Away from the word, it can drive us away from Christ, or it can drive us to him and to the word and to Christ. And so if you're going through a trial, if you're being tested, if you are... in some way being tested in your faith in Christ, the question is, where is it driving you to? What is it doing in your heart? And the glory is, is that if it's not doing what it should, there's always repentance and forgiveness. Confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you have to ask that. And here what it should be doing is causing us to look at this promise that God is going to bring you into his eternal glory. Look at the things not which are seen, but the things which are not seen. How do we look at those things which are not seen? We look at them in scripture where he tells us about them. We look at them in his word and we say his word is true. Again, does a trial cause you to neglect God's word? Does it seem impotent and ineffectual in your heart? Or does it make you cling to the word even more and say, I need this. I need to rest on these promises. I have nothing else but God who will sustain me. And I need him. I need his truth. And what will he do when he promises in this glory? He says he will himself perfect now, these terms are really, has been well noted, nearly synonymous verbs that really are just emphasizing the glory of the believer's hope. And they represent really a, a, a full orb sense of what God is doing. Some take them to refer to what God is doing only in the present. Some take them to refer primarily what God is only doing in the future. But the idea, as others have noticed as well, is more than that. It is to say the future tense here is referring to... This is what God will do in the future. Primarily, his focus is eschatological. In other words, looking to the end of salvation. But what God will do in perfection at the end of salvation is what he's in the process of doing right now in the suffering. So it has both aspects. God is right now perfecting, confirming, strengthening, and establishing you. But God will do that in its fullest sense when we stand before him. And that's really what he's looking at. Restore has the idea of being brought to full completion. Just to give you an idea. It's, re, it's referred to restoring a brother in sin. Sometimes it's referred to, Paul says, completing. The same word of what's lacking in the faith, for example, of the Thessalonians. But the idea is, is being brought to full completion. And, he, and he's saying here, God will complete you in Christ. What he began in you, he will perfect. Philippians 1.6, God who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will do that. He will restore you. He will make you complete and whole in Christ. And when we see Christ, we will see him as he is because we will be conformed fully to his likeness, 1 John 3.2. So in the trial, it's a perfecting process that began at salvation, continues through life, and will be completed upon glorification. He will confirm you. It has the idea of being fixed. He will will confirm you in the faith. He will confirm you in your belonging to Christ. He will confirm you in everything that you are holding dear. And the idea here is this, that God is continually working in the believer, especially in suffering, a deeper and a deeper, more settled faith, a more confirmed faith, a more steadfast faith. He's confirming in them essentially this, The truths on which they are standing, on which we stand. That one day, at the end, we will know in full reality, and everything in which we hope now will be confirmed absolutely on that day when it's revealed. This will come when faith becomes sight. And at this point, all weaknesses and struggles that are put to the test should have this result. Of establishing in us more and more in us more certainly the truths on which we stand. And therefore then it should strengthen us. He will restore us, complete us. He will confirm us and establish us or uh, confirm in us and make fixed and determine the truths on which we stand. And in that we will be strengthened. We will be strengthened. This term is used only here in the New Testament. Its contrast is to weakness. And that's certainly how the believers would have felt, weak, persecuted, cut down, left the, as Paul said, the scum of the earth. So, so what their position would have been and what believers are now who, who are suffering for the gospel, it can feel like one of weakness, one of abandonment. But he says God is strengthening you, but particularly God will strengthen you. Your standing may not be much in the world, but when you stand with Christ on that day, you will be the strong ones. You will be the mighty ones. You will be the ones who are shown to be his and sharing in his, the glory of his kingdom. Lastly, he says he will establish you, and this is wonderful. It has the idea of a settled and unmovable foundation, a fixed and a settled reality. It may even allude to what he had said earlier in chapter 2 when he says we are a spiritual house and by men verse 5 living stones precious in the sight of God rejected by men choice and precious in the sight of God living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and so forth that that's the foundation on which we stand is Christ, and we're being established in that foundation. We're being prepared to receive the fullness of that which God is building even now. It's a glorious promise. He will establish us immovable, unshakable. One has said this related to this verse. It is in, it is in time of trial that we discover the great truths on which real life is founded. Isn't that great? It's in the time of trial that we discover the great truths on which real life is founded. What is the idea of that? Trials have a way of getting rid of the superficial, don't they? Don't they? Trials have a way of getting rid of kind of the dross and the vanity and the superficial and the silly things of life. You get struck with cancer. You have our believers around the world who are suffering for the gospel. They're not living for the trivial things of life, the superficial, the vain, the empty. And the reality and the truth of the gospel of God himself to be even more and more the real experience of the solid rock on which we stand. So they have a way of establishing us in the truth, establishing us in the gospel. They help us to think more deeply, think more according to reality. If we lack trials, that can often be a detriment to our spiritual life. And so He will establish us. He is establishing us, and He will establish us. I want to make one note here. This is Peter's presentation, and the Holy Spirit through Peter's presentation of this great and glorious truth, and that is this, the perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere. The saints will persevere. A great, great and glorious truth. The perseverance of the saints as a doctrine is defined in this way, I think a helpful way. The perseverance of the saints means this, that all those who are truly born again, which Peter has already established these believers at the beginning, you've been born again to a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have. Peter is saying, born again. And, and so, through Peter is saying, look, you have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to inha- obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. You are being kept by the power of God through faith to receive this salvation. And now he's kind of putting a bookend of all of that and saying, and God who made that promise will himself confirm you in it and establish you in it, strengthen you in it. That God will do that. He will make you persevere. Again, why? Because it's a God of all grace who called you. Your salvation didn't begin with you, and your salvation doesn't end with you in terms of your bringing it about it begins and ends and is sustained by the gracious purposes of God that he has completed in Christ. And that's why it's to his eternal glory that we'll worship forever. Because it's all of him, all of him from beginning to end. What he has begun, he will complete. And the end of salvation is certain for those who are truly in Christ. We won't believe in this too much, but I just want to encourage you with a few reminders throughout scripture. But Jesus made this promise in John chapter 6. You remember? He says this. I have come down from the will of him who sent me. What is that will? What does the Father intend in sending the Son? What does the Son intend to fulfill in his coming at the behest of the Father? And this is the will of God. That of all he has given me, Before the foundation of the world, all he has promised by adoption in Christ, all he has determined out of a fallen world, this portion, as we've noted before, out of all the fallen world that he has kept for himself and for his own glory, of all whom he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son. ...and believes in him will have eternal life... ...and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's essentially what Peter is reflecting. That this promise will come true. Christ himself has said, if the Father has given someone to me... ...that person will behold and come to me... ...because he will be learned or taught and taught from the Father... Because the Spirit will give them life. Because faith will issue out of that life. Repentance will issue out of that life. Salvation will issue out of that life. And they will be sustained in it. And my purpose in rape can fell. On the last day cannot fail any more than any part of God's decreed will can fail. If God's purposes can somehow be thwarted, then you should be nervous. But they can't be. And he's going to us in that as well. Let me just give you one more to, to make mention of. And again, one you're familiar with, but Romans chapter 8, uh, we know many parts of Romans 8, but one that we're most familiar with is in verse 28. He says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And we go, Yay! That means I'm going to get my promotion. Everything's going to work out at home. That's sometimes how it's taken. That's not what he means. It's not what he's saying. What is God's good purpose? His good purpose is he's going to conform you to the image of the Son, by the way, who was reviled and did not revile in return. By the way, who in his body bore our sins on the cross. Who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How is he going to do that? He tells us in Romans 8. He first guarantees that, look, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Because what shall we say if God is for us? Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And who is to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? For just as it is written, we are all day long we are being put to death. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because this is the will of the Father. All whom he has given to me, I will raise them up on the last day. That's why. Shall any of these things separate us from him and separate us from his love and the God of all grace? No. Nothing can separate us. From His love in Christ. How will God accomplish this? How does He preserve His people? Well, I've already mentioned it. We are protected by the power of God through faith, and that means, people, and that our, the fact that God will preserve His people, the fact that God will keep us as His people, and that our salvation is guaranteed, is not a truth that produces in the regenerate heart a laxadaisical spiritual experience a careless attitude about sin. It does just the opposite. It makes us fight all the more against it. How does he preserve us? Through faith. Through faith, the power of God through faith. God, in his decree, has determined the means as well as the end. The end is our salvation. The means outside is faith and trust in Christ that perseveres to the end. And he uses a lot of things with that. But it is obedient faith is the, the end. And so this doesn't diminish the force of the commands, but it gives them their power. Because in the regenerate heart, they hear them, and they have a spiritual inner response that says yes to obedience. It says, that's the command of the Lord that I want to obey and follow. And if somebody through this suffering... And if somebody through these trials ends up saying, this just isn't worth it, I'm done with this Christian thing, I'm walking away, or I'll try to hold some kind of outward shell of religion, but I'll basically live my life. They went out from us because they weren't really of us. But those who belong to Christ will suffer, they'll fail, they'll persevere, they'll get knocked down, and then they'll be brought back up. They'll keep going on. They'll keep firm in their faith in Christ. Why? Because God upholds them, not because those who persevere to the end are the strongest and they get a trophy for their own willpower. They are the ones who are redeemed and will give God all the glory for how he sustains them. And God all the glory for how he upheld them. So how does God persevere? May cause believers to persevere, not by leaving them to their own strength, but by guaranteeing that he will uphold their Faith. So those in Christ have the spirit compelled response to desire and actually obey, to hear these commands in all of their intended seriousness and importance. That's what happens in the heart of a believer. Just as a note, you might ask them why are those warning passages there that threaten us with the fact of failure? Why are they there? If believers are, in fact, guaranteed to persevere to the end, why are they there? They're there, so believers will persevere to the end. That's why they're there. God gives us warnings because a believer hears those warnings and is struck with the reality of the possibility, particularly a believer who's feeling the reality of unbelief in their heart, failure and struggle, and we hear those warnings, and we are struck with the reality of failure, and it causes us to what? To flee to Christ. To repent. The warning passages are there for believers to sustain them, to warn them, to pr- frighten them in a sense, even to put the fear of God in them so that they will persevere and they will not fail to the end. But here he gives us a very positive statement that God will perfect. God who called you will perfect and confirm you. And how can we be guaranteed of this? Verse 11. And this is how he ends it. To him be dominion Forever. If we were to give this a title, this one is be what sustains his people is worship. Worshiping the king of all. That's the final encouragement. To him be power and dominion. He is reminding us that God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. We can use that term sometimes, we who understand the sovereignty of God and and sometimes it's, it's not used with the kind of warmth and encouragement to give. It's almost like a doctrinal weapon in a discussion. But the sovereignty of God, for those who know God, is one of the most precious truths in all of Scripture. It's one of the most precious truths in all of Scripture, that God is, in, that is not to be trusted in, that can go in a different direction at a moment's notice. What is the great truth of a Christian? What about life, that you never know what life brings? It is in that moment to be able to say, God is absolutely sovereign, the God whom I serve. And that's essentially what he's reminding them of here. And it's always what has been a part of his unique glory and the comfort of his people. Psalm 96.7, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Glory and strength. When God delivered his people... Out of the land of Egypt, what was their praise? They glorified him and they honored him for the display of his mighty power and rule over the nations. Exodus 15, 6. Your right hand, O Lord. That is the hand of power and the hand of authority. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And so here... Peter ends this doxology or the content of this doxology is a reminder that it's God's rule and God's reign that is the final word. God's rule and God's reign. And this is, in fact, again, what will comprise the praise of God's people. For us in Revelation 5, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive what? Power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Power, dominion, rule. And think of what a word of encouragement that would be to these original hearers. At this time, the Roman Empire reigned with absolute and sometimes ruthless power over all of the known world. Who could stand against the might of the Roman Empire? Who could stand against the might of Caesar and the army and the whole machine of Rome? By all human perspectives, Rome seemed like an unbreakable and an insurmountable force of strength and unbounded authority and rule. Some people have that idea of America, don't they? However, the Roman Empire, as every empire before and every empire after, cannot escape its own corruption, and by that corruption, its own ultimate futility. is like grass, echoing Isaiah's words, Isaiah 40, All flesh is like grass, all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. No human kingdom endures, it will fade no matter what present glory it might have. It will be destroyed. God is the only one who reigns supreme over it all. Every kingdom is under God's reign. They exist within his dominion, his rule, and will be accountable to his judgment. And that's faith. You remember Daniel was not in a situation where those things were evident. At this point where he writes this, Israel was still subjected to another earthly kingdom. And yet, Daniel said this, which would be reflected in words that Nebuchadnezzar himself would say later in Daniel. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epoch. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It's he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. It's God's purposes that will stand. He causes a kingdom to rise and he causes a kingdom to fall. Nebuchadnezzar himself said, How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from every generation. Daniel would say the same thing later. Or Nebuchadnezzar, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So God reigns over the suffering is the idea here. God reigns over Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion. God reigns over Rome. We would say God reigns over America. God reigns over China. God reigns over North Korea. God reigns over Mexico. God reigns over Israel. God reigns over the Palestinian nations. God reigns over Russia. God reigns over every single thing in his dominion, which is everything. And that's his encouragement. To him be dominion forever and ever He made a promise, he'll bring it about. Isaiah 43, it is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declare the Lord. I am God, even from eternity I am he. There is none who can deliver out of my hand I act, and who can reverse it? So when the nations have finished the purpose of God, he will establish his own kingdom and judge them. So it's better to be a part of the kingdom of Christ spiritual power or all of them mounted together are even the smallest threat to god and so how can you be strengthened in trial how can we be strengthened in a world that seems so set against and seems so powerful is here to remember to him is dominion forever and ever whatever force the world shows now or circumstances or whatever god's purposes are the ones that will stand and so that's his encouragement Think on these things, think on this kingdom, think on his power, think on your salvation. Stand firm in the faith, stand firm in those truths that you know. Let your trials drive you to the word of God, not away from the word of God. Let your trials bring about a real sense of your own weakness and own that weakness so that you might be strong in his strength. Look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. That's how we as Christians live. That's how we should live. And to encourage us in that as well, God has given us the Lord's table. He's given us the table. What does the table remind us of? His kingdom is coming, that he will return, that he is right now making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father, that he will return in the glory of the Father and all of the holy angels and establish his kingdom on earth. The Lord's table reminds us that we belong to him who is purchased and made perfect and complete atonement. Say that I, the Lord's table is his own reminder to us, you could say, even from heaven, to say that I will bring about my promises. The Lord's table is a reminder for us as well to remember that we as his people in union with the risen Lord are to live consistent with that kingdom. That means in unity, in truth. And humility, and love. That's what Christ prayed for, isn't it? That the world would know by our unity. And that's why when we come to the table, we come to the table with our own sin, but we come to the table aware of our own sin and humbled by it. But we come to the table full of joy as well, that we have a savior for that sin. We have a promise that one day that sin will cease. But it also means that we come to the table Conscious that we need to come in a worthy manner and that we don't come with division in our life, relational division. We don't come with known sin that we're not willing to deal with, that we're holding on to. We don't come with any kind of false belief that by taking this table and these elements will somehow make us more spiritual. We don't come in that way. We come in faith. We come in trusting in His grace. And so as I pray, uh, the men will come and bring the elements. Together, him at his table, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. May we lay hold of this promise, and may we, by your sustaining grace, know the strength and know the power of your work in us as we rely on you and your word and your promises. Help us to grow through our trials. Help them to point us always to you, O Christ, and teach us to rely and trust in your good and sovereign purposes. And we commit ourselves to you as your people in the name of Jesus.